This is Andrew Gutman, co-host of Ricochet's new podcast series, Take Back Our Schools. Join me and my co-host, Bethany Mandel, this week when we talk with Erica Sanzi of Parents Defending Education. It's a fascinating discussion from someone who's seen the problem from all directions, as a teacher, as a school board member, and as a parent. That's Take Back Our Schools, releasing Monday, December 13th on ricochet.com and wherever you get your podcasts. No, I, I mean, I wrote a piece of a ricochet about California. You know, you hear all these bad things, and then you, know, you, you go there, and it's paradise on earth. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Today, I want to take a few moments to talk about the new COVID variant. It's called the Omicron. With all due respect, that's a bunch of a lot. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Wall. I'm James Wiley. Today we talk to our own Dr. J about COVID and Seth Kropsky about Ukraine, Putin, and other items. So let's have ourselves a podcast. Welcome, everybody. It is the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 573. How do we get this far? Well, because of people like you. What? You're not someone like us? You can be. You can join us at ricochet.com. Be part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. One of the things you get when you sign up is access to special little features like no dumb questions. That's one of our recurring little motifs. Next Tuesday, it's another edition of No Dumb Questions. You can join our editor, John Gabriel, and Selena Zito of the Washington Examiner and the New York Post. Any questions on the 2016 campaign trails? speculation about 2022. Curious about the formation and reformation of American populism. Uh, you got any Steeler fans in the uh, the house or uh, haters? Because we'll talk about that too. So join us next Tuesday, December 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and right. uh, 5 Pacific, of course. you got to be a Ricochet member to participate, though, so don't be dumb. Sign up today at ricochet.com slash join and get your first 30 days free, no credit card. Check it out, test it out, you'll be a member for life. I'm James Lilix, back from cloudy California, which was beautiful. We have Peter Robinson in California now, which I believe is probably golden and gorgeous. And Rob Long, the peripatetic flaneur, who is where today? I am uh, back home in New York City. Oh, I have to say, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I have to say, the no dumb questions thing, it is, yeah, the no dumb questions thing, it's a very cool thing if you're a member. Please join. Um, what we mean by – I realize that I may be – I think I helped name this, and I did it wrong. No dumb question doesn't mean – Help name it. The whole thing yeah. was you're doing. Okay. You can't – it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to ask a dumb question. No. It means that all questions are cool, and there aren't any – is no way for you to ask a dumb question. And it's, it kind of comes from the fact that I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm, I'm asking a dumb question, and I need to get approval for that because I'm – what the title means is too long for the title, but what the title means yeah. is there is no such thing as a dumb right. question on we, this right. podcast. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and you never know. Maybe your mm-hmm. dumb questions can be smart. And we'd put it out for everybody, but that would be free, and there ain't no such thing as a free lunch either. Yeah. So we're just telling yes. you what there is and what there ain't in the world. Yeah. Uh, by the way, J- James, and speaking of football, what was the final score last night? I quit in oh. the second when, this, yeah. when Minnesota wow. was already up 23-zip. 
Yeah, what happened? Went to, went to 29 zip, and then, uh, as usual, the Minnesota Vikings sort of lost their focus and allowed about uh, oh, 28 points or so. So, in the are game, you uh, kidding me? You mean I missed not a good kidding. game? I'm not. You missed a good game. Came down to a couple of interceptions, half. and they marched all the way to the end. And it was going to be one of those touchdown and then two point things. Two seconds left. We managed to stop them, and the place exploded. I've never been. To the, the to the to the U.S. Bank Stadium, the Vikings Stadium, uh, and seen a Vikings game, and it was pageantry and tribal glory, the likes of which I've never seen. You watch <laughs> the game at home, and you're with your friends, and it's fun, and the rest of it. You get in there, and there are all these rituals that kick in, and you have to participate in that are absolutely delightful. There is a horn that they blow, this two-note horn that is meant to to instill our Viking blood. <laughs> Froth is the Minnesota marrow in a wonderful fashion. Two, two notes being the, the, the extreme upper limit of Viking capabilities. Oh, very, very funny. But the weird thing about it is that nobody seems to point out is the first time I heard this horn, I said, I know where they got that from. That's what the Martian ship plays in the Spielberg Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. It's a terrifying sound. I don't know if they bought it or what. But it's the Martian. We're about to kill everybody. Sound, but it's now been repurposed. Spoiler alert: so, The Martians also yeah. lost mm-hmm. in that movie. Right. So anyway, it was a great day to be a Vikings fan, and it was just wonderful to be amongst them in this in normal, the most normal thing in the world to be in a stadium with sixty thousand people, nobody wearing masks, everybody shouting and drinking and feasting and the rest of it. It was just great. But speaking of speaking of uh, masking, you know, in California. <laughs> I had to go through that little charade. Put your mask on to enter the restaurant, walk to your table, take the mask off. I don't get it, but it's what they do. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but for the last week, I've sort of been living in a world in which COVID is just, eh, eh, you know, okay, all right. I'm vaxxed and boosted, I don't care. But that's that's what some people think. Some people think differently. So why don't we talk to somebody who knows something? Dr. J. Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Ricochet's resident good doctor, newly minted, just fresh senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor of public health policy at Stanford Medical School, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and none of which he would have been able to accomplish, of course, without his frequent appearances on this very podcast, which do qualify as published research. Exactly. Welcome, Doc. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. J. Bhattacharya. And we welcome him back. Dr. J., how are you today? Thanks, James. Nice to be here. Well, are we all calling it Omicron now? Because that's that's what President Biden called it. <laughs> they skipped uh, the new and she, uh, so now now it's Omicron. <laughs> One of my favorite things in the coronavirus uh, Reddit subreddit is that somebody pointed out that indeed she would have put some uh, obloquy on China. And there were about 500 cunt. Comment removed by moderator because the the moderators <laughs> just didn't want wow. everybody. Everybody went there, and the moderators and can, of course Reddit is. Can a, I just make exception? I actually I'm not sure how XI is actually pronounced in Greek. <laughs> so um, yeah, but you know we can go with she. So we got Omicron, and or maybe we don't, or maybe we do, and we didn't. We don't even know it because it's mild. Give us what we know. So there's there's still. Uh, 
a lot left to learn about it, but what, what we know is that first, it was first discovered in South Africa uh, by South African scientists who have a very good uh, screening sort of program for, for looking for these variants. Uh, they, they found, uh, I think, like, I mean, uh, you know, 100-some cases to date or more uh, now, uh, all of which have been mild to date. Uh, we then promptly put in place these travel restrictions from the, the one country that found it uh, and found then that 38 countries, or I mean, 54, <laughs> we've now been found in 54 other countries. Uh, so you can see the travel restrictions have worked. Um, and uh, every case, nearly every case so far seems milder than the, 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 the equivalent Delta cases. Um, I mean, I don't know that that will continue, but I think in order to be really safe, to like really nail that down, I, I'd like to know if they're younger cases or older cases, if, if there's, of older people getting this and they're getting mostly mild release, that's incredibly good news. Not according to The Atlantic and everybody else. They're calling this the pandemic of the vaccinated, and they're almost gleeful and relieved that it's going to continue on. <laughs> We've gotten in this cycle where uh, fear feeds on itself, and there's, there's I guess, uh, you know, sort of you get you get credit for, for, for spreading panic and fear. Right. So I think right. it's an enormous mistake. Um, I mean, because I think the like if you if you're looking at this, uh, the disease is is endemic. Is or is, or is what that means is uh, it's not ever going away. At least that's what I mean by it. It's going to have variants. Uh, coronaviruses always have variants uh, forever. It's going to it's going to it come come and go. The key thing is if you're if you have the disease and recovered, or if you've been vaccinated. Then, if you get it, it's likely to be mild. And mild, so, mild. So, Jay, so Jay, what you, mild means what? Mild means like on the scale of one to the flu. Is it an eight? Is it an eleven? Is it a ten? Mild means. I mean, to me, if you don't get hospitalized, you're not. It's mild. I mean, it's. it's yeah. I mean, you could have a fever and and. You stay home. home. Yeah, I you think it's the finding with Omicron. They're not even finding people with a lot of uh, loss of sense of smell and taste. So it's it's like a it is like a cold to some to some extent. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't get really sick, but it's possible. But the point is that if you've had the disease before, or if you've been vaccinated and boosted, why worry about this? It's like it is it is. Um, well, well, then that that is the question. Why why worry? Why why are people worrying? I mean, I, I just came back from three a three week trip through Europe. I went France, Spain, Hungary, Italy. In France. Uh, every time I tried to show my vaccination card in a public place, they kind of looked at me like, oh, really? Like, I'm, I'm the narc. You're the kid in the class who raises his hands and says, you forgot to ask us for home? You got to get signed home, right? And in Spain, they were a little bit more kind of care. Once, they didn't. They didn't look. They didn't care. In Hungary, never. Nowhere. They, they, they nowhere. Um, and in Italy, a little bit more, but still, like, okay, I had to get a, a, a what the government called a viral test, which was meaningless to me. I had to get one 24 hours before you fly, which means it's going to be a it's going to be an antigen test, right? The Q-tip up the nose, and I and basically the guy came and stuck the Q-tip in my nose and then put it in a little plastic box the way they do it at the one you buy at CVS. That's the level of you know accuracy here. I tested negative on the spot. Three hours later, they send me an official-looking document, which I get the hotel to print out. I carry the document and my passport into the airport, and I show it to this woman at the desk where I'm checking my bags, and she kind of looks at it and gives it back. It was the worst kind of theater. At least Kabuki theater, they they put an effort into this. 
Did anything I do, was anything of that valuable in stopping the spread of COVID, stopping the spread of a variant, stopping the spread of Omicron, whatever you have? Is any of that helpful? I think uh, most of it is theater, I believe. Okay. I mean, I think, you know, if you if you are sick, you should stay home, right? So I don't I don't recommend flying around if you're if, if, you're, if you're sick. Uh, and you know maybe maybe an antigen test if you feel sick before you before you go off on that European adventure is probably wise. Um, but what you just tell tell people to do that. They'll, mostly people will do it. They're not going to. Yeah. They don't want to spread the thing. Uh, the uh, you know all, all through Europe we've had these massive protests against these vaccine passports. Right. Um, and uh, it's it's a. Uh, in some places, they're taking it really seriously. In Austria, I heard they're going to fine you if you don't get vaccinated. Thousands and thousands <laughs> a month. Um, the Austrians do have a history of um, <laughs> enforcing bureaucratic rules, let's just say. I, I, it fills me with happiness to hear that, that in France, they're just they're not they're not actually enforcing the thing because it's it's insane. Like you, if you're not if you're not if you're not if you're feeling fine, I mean, if you don't look if you don't look sick. You should be able to participate in regular life. I mean, this idea of asymptomatic spread, I mean, not that it can't happen. It's that we have tools to address the thing if you do get sick. We have the vaccine that reduces the severity of the disease. We have uh, we have uh, monoclonal antibodies, which, if you take them early, keep you out of the hospital. Uh, we have rapid antigen tests so that you, you can check to see if you're positive before you go visit the grandma. Uh, right. I mean, I think we have all these tools. That is the message that we should be sending now. Use what we got. So I, I have two questions. I know Peter wants to get into this. My first question is super practical. Um, uh, state of play a year ago was uh, if uh, – because a year ago I got COVID pretty much, close to a year ago. Uh, state of play was if you get it, you test positive, you take a, a steroid shot, a Z-pack, massive doses of vitamin D, and if you're in a you know progressive – uh, forward-thinking, future-conscious uh, location, the doctor might prescribe hydroxychloroquine to me, which he did, or to my brother who's symptomatic, ivermectin. Um, today, it seems like, I did what I read yesterday, which is ivermectin actually isn't, probably is not that useful, or am I, did I misread that? I mean, there's a major NIH trial on ivermectin that nobody knows about. It's called Active 6. It's due to be done in March 2023, when we'll have the definitive answer to this. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Excellent time. That's the time for the alpha alpha when they have to go through the variant, the the alpha variants, right? <laughs> alpha squared will say a lot. In the, right. in the, just the... And so my next question is this: is like um, uh, my uh, totally unscientific cursory um, research through some, uh, some you know tiny fraction of the world's population, but it included some substance, a very kind of, really kind of moving conversation I had. At a bar in Milan with a young couple, uh, uh, very I mean young, like in the twenties. Um, uh, and when I said, "Listen, we're all going to get this thing," my friend Jay Bhattacharya, here's his email. Uh, he, uh, we're all going to get it. Uh, it Maybe multiple times in our lives. Y- you young people should protest and you should go live your life. Go live your life. Old people, you know. Uh, Nice knowing you, but young people, you know, people, like, people. Yeah, that's how it works, Rob. I mean, look, it works for me. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. But what, what what they said to me was, uh, we've no, no one ever, no one's saying that. No one is saying that. But we, we wish people were saying that. So I guess, how big would you say the gap is now between ordinary sentient citizens paying attention to the world around them? 
who were like, well, okay, well, you know, I got the vaccine and got the booster and, you know, I'm doing my thing. And the world medical establishment feels like the world medical establishment is yelling fire in a crowded movie house. And the world, world normal citizens are just sitting there trying to enjoy the movie. I think the, I think the people have had enough. I, I think that yeah. finally people are saying, look, the, the, uh, we cried wolf too many times. And the wolf hasn't ended. Why you're crying wolf? You're crying wolf this time. You know that the emperor has no clothes. Um, I, it's, I mean, I, which is actually unfortunate, right? Uh, having yeah. a populace that distrusts public health is bad for that. Obviously, it's bad for public health, which is not that important. But it's also bad for the populace. You need a public health worthy of trust, and uh, that trusts the public. Uh, that that would be a much better situation. The second best is what we're currently having is that a lot of people are looking around saying, uh, you know, why do I have to wear the mask on the way to, the, to sit down in the restaurant and then I can take it off? How does that make any sense? Right. Uh, I mean, why, why do I have to, like, quarantine for 14 days just because I was next to somebody who may have been sick uh, and I have no symptoms at all? Like, why does it make sense to, like, uh, scare, get scared every single time there's some, some scientist somewhere comes up with some variant? Um, I, I just, it doesn't, it's for a lot of the populace, they've said enough. Um, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, you, the thing is, is like, it's, that's much more reasonable than what the public health authorities are doing. They're, they're still trying to stoke fear in a, in a very different situation than we had last year. We have all these tools. Last year, we didn't have the vaccine. Last year, we didn't have uh, rapid antigen tests widely available. Last year, we didn't have uh, monoclonal antibodies. Last year, we didn't have a, a whole host of things that, uh, essentially, if you use them, defang the disease. That, if you tell people that, go live your life, and here are these tools if, if you get sick. Well, isn't that just how we treat almost every other disease, right? I mean, you know, we live with the prospect of getting cancer any day. It could happen. Right. Um, you know, do we do we end? Do we go hide and, and panic over it? No. Do we do we, we? You could get you could get yellow fever. That still goes around. Um, you can get the flu and die. You, there are 200 right. pathogens in human circulation, in, in sort of the commonly infect humans, um, and yet we don't restructure our lives around that. We, it's not that we, we don't think about it once we get it, and, but the point is that uh, we always we live in a world of risk, uh, and we don't we, we balance that risk against the other things we value in our lives. You know, going to, going to a church, going to a, going to a concert, going to a play. Seeing, hugging my like my kids, you know. I think all of those things are are, are always put in some balance and, and and perspective. Public health should be doing that instead of just panicking. Jay, I was feeling fine until you turned up and started talking about cancer and yellow fever. <laughs> Jay, several polls out in the last week, or several polls that received major attention in the newspapers I read. And one reason the Biden administration is suffering, so the reasoning goes, is that the administration promised it would handle COVID, and it hasn't. At least that's what people perceive. So I think the argument, your argument would be that the Biden administration was silly to put itself in that position. Of course, they were trying to make Donald Trump look bad, but they, he screwed it up. We'll get it right. You won't have to worry about COVID six months or nine months from now. If you were advising the Biden administration right now, what would you would you say? Lower expectations? Would you say declare victory and change the? What would you advise? I, I would I would say declare victory and move on. Like, this is what they should have done in July. I mean, remember the July Fourth? Go have a barbecue with your friends. Uh, right. Each. I mean, that was a 
a golden opportunity for the Biden administration to declare victory. Um, you know, because even by then we we had vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, and, uh, and and rapid tests. Uh, they could have just they could have declared, and that that's what they should do now. They should say, look, uh, this is a this is a disease that will be with us forever. If you're older and and more vulnerable, you know, you still need to be careful. But here are these tools to make it so it's not just so bad. If you're not, if you don't get vaccinated, if you haven't, um, here's, you know, here's the, uh, here are monoclonal antibodies. And do what Governor DeSantis did, make them widely available to have strike force teams. You just call them up and they come to your house and confuse you. Ra- push really hard for for rapid evaluation, for good trials of these relatively cheap drugs. Um, I think, go, and then just say, look, we have these tools now. Go live your life. That's it. Declare victory. I mean, and it, could, it would be a bipartisan victory. Um, they need to rein in the CDC, which has been spreading this fear. Um, and uh, instead of instead of like uh, instead, what they did is they decided that they were going to use the vaccination campaign as a tool to to marginalize Republicans. Uh, the weird thing is that it's not just the Republicans that started distrusting them. <laughs> Large fractions of minorities in the United States aren't vaccinated. Why? Because they don't trust public health. Large fractions of of, 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 of young, yeah, younger populations are not vaccinated because right. you know the benefit is marginal, and people again don't trust public health. I think that's the problem. They just need to they need to like re- restore trust and declare victory. Jay, I know we need to let you go, and actually, so do all our listeners, because in introducing you, James listed the twenty seven jobs that you have. <laughs> of course, you're busy. But the uh, most but important I, one is this one. So. Yes, exactly. I have one last question. When you and I spoke. When we inter- uh, taped an episode of Uncommon Knowledge, which is up on YouTube now, which has attracted, what, 1.6 million views, people like to hear what you have to say. You argued that this would not have ended properly until public health authorities gave the American public an apology. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Anthony Fauci still says, and I'm the science. But what I'm curious about is... What kinds of emails, what kinds of response to that statement have you received from public health professionals? Nothing from public health officials. From, from, from public health officials, a lot of a lot of very very nice emails from the public at large. Um, I mean, I think um, what public health has done to this country and to this world is is really deserving. They really do des- need to apologize. They have blind uh, sort of blinded us to all of the other. Uh, parts of our life, thinking that only this disease is the only thing we ought to care about, um, and that that has caused enormous damage. You know, uh, uh, to ch- children, uh, adolescent girls, fifty percent increase in suicide attempts in the Surgeon General's report that was just uh, put out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, anxiety. Uh, one in five kids anxious. A uh, hundred million people thrown into poverty worldwide. Why? Because of this panic. Because of the lockdowns, because of this this overwrought response to the, this disease, which actually, admittedly, is a terrible disease, um, but if if we had had a measured response focused on the people who are really vulnerable, without this resort to panic, um, we would have much fewer harms on the on the collateral you know, sort, of, sort of collateral harms. Um, I mean, apology doesn't begin to cover it. We have to somehow they have to somehow restore trust in themselves, the public health authorities do, and it starts by an acknowledgement of the mistakes. How, how do you do that, though? I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I know we had to let you go, but I, I just, 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 if you could, 
in 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 2008, the world financial system collapsed, and um, and we had a bunch of reforms. Some of them were stupid, some of them weren't so stupid, but we had an, kind of a global financial audit of processes and regulations. Um, I mean, most of them didn't do anything, but there was a process to that. There were there were people we could name who paid a price. Maybe it was unfair, maybe it was like too much, but there was a sense that there was like, okay, there's going to be some kind of investigation here for how we made these mistakes. Is, how, how would you even begin to do that in, in a world in which it, you still, uh, if, you're the, if you represent the WHO, the World Health Organization, you still have an immense cultural authority. If you are uh, head of the CDC, you still have enormous cultural authority. I mean, how do you do this without firing people? I don't. I don't think you do without firing people, Rob. I think the people that have, that have led this response, this absolutely disastrous, catastrophic public health policy for the last twenty months, need to resign. I don't think there's any other way. Um, and they won't. They won't resign on their own. They have to be held accountable by political leaders that have that have essentially been fooled by their advice. They've been hypnotized by their advice. This this, this panic. Um, and uh, that the reckoning starts with that. That first an acknowledgement that there was a mistake, yeah. right? and the acknowledgement has to come. They, you're seeing already the public at large has done is done with this. They're not listening. Uh, not 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 in crazy California where I live, but many other places. Um, and there have political ramifications as well. So you know the, the Virginia election was no no accident. I mean, you guys do more more about politics than me, but I was really heartened by that because. I think I view that as a response to the botched COVID response. Jay, I have one question. It's a yes or no question, but we're going to hold it in the next time because we need you know we need to know that you've got to go. <laughs> so uh, off with you. Be gone. Go. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for uh, joining us, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, and we'll see you down the road uh, with more questions about uh, when the when the od- when the variant odometer turns over, as Rob says, we're back to alpha, alpha. Take it easy. Um, I mentioned, by the way, that. Um, it was recently in California. It was for a wedding. And here's the thing. When I looked, when my wife was looking at the uh, registry, she was appalled to find out that they didn't want what we really wanted to give them. Because sometimes with family, of course, you know, special gifts mean a lot. And if, if it's something that you know is great, you really want to give it to them. Well, what would be a better wedding gift than sheets? Sheets. Why not? We spend a third of our lives in bed. So pure organic cotton sheets from Bowl and Branch make a truly special gift. They make the highest quality sheets by doing things the right way, not the easy way. The gift everyone wants is better nights of sleep, right? You know what it's like to toss and turn. You know what it's like to hate the bed. Bowl and Branch never disappoints with the highest quality sheets, blankets, pillows, then throws as well. And their holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel special. That's one of the things I love about it, frankly, is that if you give this as a gift, you know, you can wrap it as nicely as you can, but you're never going to be able to wrap it as nicely as Bowl and Branch does. It's like unboxing an Apple product. The signature hemmed sheets, for example, it's their all-time bestseller, and for good reason. They're beloved because they get softer with every single wash. They're buttery soft, lightweight, and made with 100% organic cotton weave that feels incredible in all seasons, hot or cold. And along with their oh-so-comfortable sheets, you can enjoy pillows and bath towels and robes even that are made to the high standard that only get from Bowl and Branch. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowl and Branch. The gifts comes wrapped in ready and special holiday packaging. Order by 1219, the 19th of December for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Order by 1219 to get them by Christmas. And you can shop the holiday semi-annual sale from now to December 15th 
and get 20% off at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. See their site for details. Some exclusions may apply. And we thank Bowling Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Seth Cropsey. Seth is a senior fellow and director of the Center for American Sea Power at Hudson Institute. Specializes in defense strategy, U.S. foreign and security policy in the Mideast and East Asia, and the future of U.S. naval power. He's with us today to get us up to speed on Putin and Biden and Ukraine. Uh, Seth, welcome. We hear a lot about this power vacuum that's going to be left by the United States if we retreat, if we don't assert ourselves. But you say, and wrote recently, that that you know, that what we doesn't exist anymore. The power vacuum has been filled already by Russia and China. And some people will say, you know, well, good luck. China can have the Uganda airport. Who cares? Russia can go in the briar patch in the Middle East. We've tried that. Glad we're out. Take us through some of the places around the world in which U.S. power has receded and been filled by these actors who are, shall we say, not people we really want the future of, of, of the world to be about. Well, Uganda's not the issue. The Middle East is. Um, so uh, as important as Africa is, and it is important, um, the Middle East is the um, is one of the three likely places for uh for armed conflict, um, which I think hundreds of commentators have already pointed out could be could come at the same time. And we've been shifting, the United States has been shifting uh, its economic and security focus to and diplomatic focus to uh, the West Pacific um, for, you know, for 10 years now. Um, and with that go ships. Um, aircraft carriers, um, we're taking an aircraft carrier out of the Persian Gulf uh, at a time when the Israelis and American Air Forces are conducting exercises at about the range of uh, which uh, Iran is from Israel. Um, and the uh, Iranians are continuing with their nuclear development program. Um, so. Um, and the Russians and Chinese, Russians especially, are taking uh, um, strong steps, successful ones, to uh, ingratiate themselves with the Israelis, and it's working. Um, they have air bases and naval bases in, uh, in Syria, and they're continuing to build them, and it's working. Um, and the United States is... Uh, sort of gone, gone, gone. Or I should say going, going, gone. How about that? <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. Um, this is Rob Long in New York. So I have a question. Um, the uh, Biden administration, uh, I guess, allowed um, the, the, the completion by the Russians of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, which goes right from Russia to Germany, doesn't have to go through Ukraine. Um, is that now... Was that a huge blunder? Was it a small blunder? Was it not a blunder at all? The, the Biden administration is claiming that the, 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 the pipeline's not working right now, so we still basically – it's still our leverage. But it does seem to me that that they – in the early days of the Biden administration, they gave Putin a huge, huge leg up. Well, Russia's poor, and its main source of wealth is um, – as a rentier state, as a state that uses its natural resources to provide income. Um, and uh, 
So I think it's that Russian foreign policy, security policy at the core is determined by their interest in exporting energy. Um, and the North Sea line um, is extremely important to that. And um, the Germans seem willing to uh, to end right. things if the um, and the Biden administration is threatened to reimpose sanctions if for if the Russians use force in Ukraine. So uh, I think to remove the sanctions in the first place was um, well certainly turns out to be a mistake. And uh, yeah. and um, and if uh, if the United States is seen as appeasing the Russians in Ukraine in whatever form, there will be large consequences to follow, not only there, but in mm -hmm. the Persian Gulf and certainly in the West Pacific. So, so I got two questions. I know that Peter wants to jump in, but my, my first question is, so the calculation with uh, respect to Russia, I think, is comes uh, you have two basic considerations one if you make them too desperate if the sanctions are too high or too draconian if you don't let the, the, the pipeline go through then you make them too desperate and they're going to lash out and then the other side is but if you make them too comfortable if you give up too much if you come if you start giving up all your leverage then you're going to make them you're going to embolden them and they're going to make trouble um how, how would you rate the Biden administration right now threading that needle I mean, are, how close are we to seeing a Russian incursion in Ukraine? That really depends upon what the Biden administration does. Right. Um, are, are, and what NATO does. Uh, mm -hmm. are, are, is the United States by itself uh, or together with its NATO allies uh, going to uh, supply more arms to the Ukrainians? Um, are we going to share useful intelligence? Uh, do we have a plan for uh, supplying an insurgency in Ukraine in the event of a Russian invasion uh, with the arms they'll need? And they'll fight very hard. Um, they'll make, uh, I think they'll make the opposition to Russia's invasion of Afghanistan look like a cakewalk. Um, <laughs> Wow. And, and does and does does Putin really want to put his put himself uh, um, and his popularity on the line? Russians don't like having their sons killed either. Mm -hmm. How vulnerable is Putin right now in Russia? Um, I, you know, I, I think the Russians are sort of apolitical, um, unless they're really being um, unless they're really being pinched by something or other. Not really, they're not being pinched by anything new. Um, the economy is, you know, rumbling along at a slow pace. Um, the oligarchs are getting fatter. Um, uh, Putin's popularity is uh, not what it was in the past, but mm -hmm. he can survive it. Um, he's able to uh, imprison or kill off the opposition. Um, so I think it's more or less the way it's been in Russia for a long time. Certainly, under the two get two decades, more or less two decades right. of, of the of the Putin uh, reign. If you're Putin, though, what are you worried about? Who are you worried about? Three things: oil, natural gas, and oil. <laughs> um, does Does Putin really think that even if Ukraine became 
a member of NATO that um, the uh, the consequence would be uh, a, uh, an attack, uh, a ground attack, or any kind of an attack from Ukraine from Ukraine into Russia. If he thinks that, then he's not as smart as I think he is. But but it's understandable. It's understandable yeah. that he's concerned about uh, Ukraine, which has all kinds of historic and emotional attachments for for Russians, uh, having uh, NATO on his borders. I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't think that uh, it would mean anything more than uh, giving Ukraine Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens. Uh, more confidence of, of security against a Russian move, but um, it does have implications for the Black Sea, um, and th that extends into the Eastern Mediterranean, the Central Mediterranean, and all the way to the Straits, uh, the Bab al-Mandab, at the end of the Red Sea. But, I, but, but look, I agree with your with your characterization, Rob, that uh, that it's a um, uh, it is difficult to to walk the line mm -hmm. between uh, actions that will increase tension or result in military action on the one hand and appeasement on the other. And I think that it's important for American uh, policymakers um, to understand that um, Russia and China's current relationship is unusual, uh, and um, the more the more important strategic fact is that uh, their long-term strategic interests are not uh, are not conjoined at all. Uh, right. Xi Jinping wants to dominate the world, and uh, Putin would be happy to regain a portion of the of the Soviet Empire. And insofar as that happiness extends to Central Asia, for example, or Siberia, right. the two interests diverge. So what are the bulk? The, the, and insofar, well, um, insofar as Russia could be helpful to the United States in the future, mm -hmm. it, it makes sense to try to thread the line between uh, forcing a conflict and an appeasement so that the Russians could be played as a card in the same way that the Chinese were played as a card by the Nixon administration. For the Balkans, I'm, I'm sorry, I just had to, had to ask, what of, what of the Balkans? You you mentioned those places that the, so the, the Russians have interest in. I mean, they have no right to Ukraine. Ukraine is a separate country, separate culture. Same with the Balkans. So what's, what's keeping him then from – nobody's going to expect that he's going to invade, but doing what he can to absorb them as, as, as much as possible into some new Soviet co-prosperity sphere. You need, uh, you need more amphibious forces. Um, you have to get from Syria to the Balkans. Um, ask, uh, ask the Ottoman emperors <laughs> if you can communicate with them um, about – uh, about doing the Dalmatian coast and doing the Balkans, uh, you need supply lines, and um, you need to get troops in large numbers there, and you need to do that with a navy, um, with at least naval support. And the Russians are building up their um, the naval forces uh, at Tartus, and building up their forces at Khmeim in Syria, and 
Um, yeah, I'm, Russia has historic connections uh, there. The languages have bear some similarities. Some of the languages do. Um, and uh, um, the, the Balkans? Did I understand you correctly? The Balkans? Yeah. Well, um, you, you, need, uh, you need more amphibious forces. Um, you have to get from Syria to the Balkans. Um, ask uh, ask the Ottoman emperors if you can communicate with them um, about uh, about doing the Dalmatian coast and doing the Balkans. Uh, you need supply lines, and um, you need to get troops in large numbers there, and you need to do that with a navy. Um, with at least naval support, and the Russians are building up their, um, their naval forces uh, at Tardis, and building up their forces at Khmeimim in Syria. And, um, yeah, and Russia has historic connections uh, there. The languages have bear some similarities. Some of the languages do. Um, and uh, um, there are connections between, longstanding connections between Serbia and Russia. Uh, I think it's a little bit early for that, but I think that the the armament of the Eastern Mediterranean um, and the disagreements between Turkey and Russia over uh, over Libya are a sign of Russian ambitions into the Central Mediterranean. So I expect it's uh, that absent some other some change in the in the way things are going, that the Russians will display more interest in the Balkans in the future. Seth. When you and I were little boys back in the 1980s, when we first got to know each other, here's what happened in the 1980s. Reagan gets elected, and there are people who know what needs to be done, and there are people who do it, meaning that by the time he gets elected, there is a kind of intellectual infrastructure. People understand how our position has eroded against the Soviets, you get, and then you get John Lehman in, going into the Navy, and we never did quite get to 600 ships, but there were people, including John Lehman, who knew what kinds of ships we needed, how much money they would cost. Cap Weinberger went to Congress, got the support, and the military by that point had reformed itself after Vietnam, and military morale is high at the moment. Reagan gets them the money, and they start building. Okay, so two questions. Today, do we know what to do? Do we even know what needs to be done? And then the second question is, can we trust the military to do it? In other words, to what extent has wokeness uh, corrupted the United States military? Distract, has diversity and justice and law, what DEI, whatever all that stands for, diverted them from the strictly military mission and undermined their ability to do their job? I don't know. I, I mean, that's not even a leading question. That's a question. I just don't know the answer to either, either piece of that, but you do. I think that the military is recoverable. Um, I don't think that it's been devastated by wokeness. I think it's been harmed by it. Um, and we're 
members of the military ought to be training and exercising and learning how to do their jobs. That time is being spent on lectures and all that kind of stuff. Um, having been an officer at the time when um, uh, the Navy was lecturing about uh, the tailhook incident and watching the, the chief of naval operations um, mea culpa and uh, you know advice about it, I can tell you that the reaction of the um, my shipmates was uh, okay. Saw that. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, it, um, it's uh, it's useful for the administration to be able to say that it's giving lectures and doing videos and all that kind of stuff. And uh, um, but I, I don't think that means that the military cannot or will not um, respond to uh, to lawful orders. And I think that. When there's a, I think that the whole uh, political and cultural movement, or maybe I should say cultural and political movement, that's uh, responsible for this uh, for this inside military, is uh, a kind of fever that seizes the country from time to time, and that the fever will break at some point or another, and. You know, some of the nonsense stories that we read every day will gradually go away because the nonsense will go away. And so uh, on that, I'm not as pessimistic as some. Uh, the other question, I'm not as optimistic as some. And that is uh, the question you ask about, do we know where we're going? Um, and I, I'd like to be able to give you a different answer, but I'm, I'm not... I'm not sure I can. Um, I don't know what the what the military or the Navy's idea of victory is in the um, in the West Pacific. Um, I know that a lot of attention is spent on force structure, which is to say, what kind of ships we build and make, you know, build and sail, operate with. Um, a lot of a lot of attention is spent on the budget issues needed to fund those ships, and I don't see quite as much attention on what do we do if we get those, if, what, what does the Navy do if the Navy gets those ships? So we're talking about a transformation that the Navy is trying to achieve at a very relaxed pace from larger ships, from a few smaller numbers of larger ships to larger numbers of smaller ships, um, including drones, um, aerial surface and subsurface and that's fine but what do we do with them is the idea to contest the chinese if there's a conflict in the um, in the south china sea is it to sink the chinese navy is it a far blockade that would uh make it ex that would have a, a a crippling effect on the chinese economy um, I don't see the answers to those questions. I don't see them being raised and debated publicly. Uh, I do think that when the maritime strategy of the, at the end of the Cold War was in place, the Soviets, that, that, that we trained for it, that we built for it appropriately, and the Soviets were very aware of the divergence on its 
seaborne flanks, its, its coastal flanks, um, that would prevent their concentration on the Polygat and the central front of Germany. I don't see that we're doing anything like that with China right now. Um, and that would be this. Some people are saying that the whole point of having an aircraft carrier and all of the things that used to defend it is now moot because China has a hypersonic missile that can just dart over the horizon and knock them out. Is that the case? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, Good. Uh, all right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Seth. <laughs> I think you have, you have to know where where the ship is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we I, I think we need we certainly need more um, robust defenses for um, for aircraft carriers. Um, and some of those defenses are not necessarily to defend the ship, but to move the ship out of the range of, of, uh, of Chinese missiles. And that means not a change in uh, operations as much as, it, as much as it does a change in the kind of aircraft that are, that are carried on the decks of an aircraft carrier because the current ones and the future generation, the F-35, uh, don't they are within range of Chinese missiles. If there, if we, if the Navy makes a transition to aircraft that um, can fly long distances and execute their mission successfully, that puts the carriers away from the Chinese missiles that that are advertised to threaten it currently. Well, I'm just happy that when we're talking about the Navy transitioning, we're talking about going to a different type of capability as opposed to reassigning its gender identity. Seth, we know you got to go, and we thank you so much for shopping, for dropping by the show today. Good to talk with you all, Peter. Seth, a pleasure. A pleasure. Keep oh, writing. Rob, James. Thank you. You know what I'd like to think is that uh, that Chinese hypersonic missile does come arcing over the horizon that our Aegis systems could take care of it. From what I understand, those are just uh, guns that just shoot lots of bullets, just fire a cloud through which nothing can get through. And there are times, frankly, when I'm on the Internet, that I wish I had one of those Aegis systems myself to deal with what you have to deal with. I mean, the Internet's great, right? We love it. It's connected us with the latest news with long-distance friends and <laughs> funny animal videos and TikTok. Yeah, there's no, you know, there's no protection for any of that stuff. Your well, Rob's... Rob, information, it's all, it's all very vulnerable. It's a solution to that. And Rob is sounding like somebody who's concerned about hackers and cyber criminals and the rest of it. I'm concerned. I've surrendered. There, there, are, we, there are no... There's no weapons in the arsenal to to, to fight back, James. That's all there is to it. Oh, I'd say that Rob didn't get the memo, but it's apparent Rob didn't get the free trial of Aura, actually. <laughs> Aura, A-U-R-A. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and your tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura... You'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like now. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, yeah, you want to know about that right away, don't you? Well, you will with Aura. And it's easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million. And my pinky yes is right by my doctor knows how. $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds. And experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control, keeps you in control, and guides you through solving any issues. 
For a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash Ricochet. Go to Aura, A-U-R-A, dot com slash Ricochet to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Ricochet. And we thank Aura for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, before we go, there's always, of course, 732 issues we haven't addressed. Important things. Wall Street Journal, for example, has a new poll. They find that Hispanic voters, I'm sorry, Latinx, uh, are split between the parties. Hmm. And I tend to think that one of the reasons you have Hispanic voters going more to the Republican side is Latinx. It's the idea that there's some sort of, uh, you know, some social movement they really don't want to be associated with that, that spells right. a whole bunch of other stuff they don't like either. Yeah, that's actually true. I mean, in fact, when you when you think about the the, 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 the changing of the phrase Latino or Latina to Latin X or, you know, people say Latinx is a joke, um, what oh, you're really saying is in a colonial white oppressive <laughs> yes, way exactly. is that your language, which is gendered, is no longer acceptable. You mm-hmm. people who speak Spanish or come from a Spanish-speaking heritage, you need to speak English because your language is um, – Wokelish. They need to speak wokelish. It is outdated. And, and, and it should be a, a no surprise to anybody that um, 40%, 40%, I think, was 42% of uh, Latinos and Latinas uh, say not only do they not use the phrase, but they find the phrase offensive. offensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you actively are choosing to piss off 40% of a group uh, and doing so in a condescending and uh, 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 dismissive manner. Um, what do you expect? And I, 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 Peter, I would also say, like a bunch of years ago, um, and I forget the other co-author's name, but Roy Teixeira. Teixeira yes, 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 mm-hmm. that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote uh, the coming uh, a book about called the Coming Democratic Majority, or it's close to that, in which he posited, in which they posited demographically, when you looked at the number of uh, Hispanics coming into the United States, the number of Hispanics already been in the United States, and their birth rates, what you were looking at was a Democratic majority as far as the eye could see starting, I think, about five years ago. And everyone thought, oh, that's just fantastic. On the left and on the right, they thought, oh, my God, let's build a wall. What nobody anticipated is that what would happen is the Democratic Party would move so crazy left-wing that the sort of general moderates in the Hispanic community, kind of in the middle, like everybody else, would be naturally drawn to the more Republican views, despite, despite, um, Trump's immigration rhetoric, right? So that was supposed to kill Republican chances with Hispanics, and it did actually the opposite. Uh, and, and there is absolutely this. You can see Roy Tisera is a very smart guy, but you can see him trying to explain away his mistake by saying it's like, um, you know, AOC's fault, or it's the, the Black Lives Matter fault, or it's defund the police's fault. At no point did anybody in the progressive left anticipate the fact that Americans are not um, sympathetic or in support of the progressive left. <laughs> like That just never occurred to them, ever. And I think that is probably the conservatives, at least the Republicans' secret uh, weapon, maybe even their superpower, uh, which despite their manifest false mistakes, they managed to succeed, is that, the, the, is that at, least, at least conservatives are more willing to believe that people disagree with them than liberals you're, you're saying that it's not the fault it's, it's the it's the fault of the progressives not aoc 
Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Those things seem inextricably in, well, intertwined no, no, that's not, with one No, it is their fault. That's, that's what so right. Roy Tixera is saying. That's yeah. the reason why right. his prediction has been delayed. Uh, was, in fact, their prediction has not just been delayed. It's been denied. Correct. Correct, correct, correct. He's here. And if, well, let me just, let's just finish this. Point. Yeah, go ahead, finish. Oh, well, the place to look is Texas. The argument was when Texas goes blue, it'll be over for Republicans. The Democrats will have New York and California, and if they have either Texas or Florida reliably in their column, there will never be another Republican president elected ever, ever, ever. <laughs> and it looked as though Texas, because of the large Hispanic population and growing Hispanic population, growing as a proportion of the Texas population, would be the one that would go blue. Two points about Greg Abbott, the current governor. He's not a perfect governor, but he's pretty good. Here's the first point. When he ran for re-election, it seemed clear enough that he would win. And what he did was devote a lot of resources to the Rio Grande Valley. He campaigned hard among Hispanic Texans. And now that he's running for re-election four years later, He's ahead of Beto O'Rourke by at least 10 points in poll after poll after poll. And this in a state in which Anglos have become a minority of the population. Free markets, decent schools, low crime in your neighborhoods. Who doesn't want that? The condescension that Democrats can move hard left and champion abortion and transgenderism and that Mexican immigrants, recent immigrants from Mexico, will have no choice, but will, be, will go right ahead. It, the condescent And Mexicans, immigrants, Me Hispanic immigrants, they know when they're being condescended to. They know which party thinks they're stupid. It ain't working. Hey, can I just look at one thing about mass? And this is incontrovertible and inarguable. As Texas became browner, it became redder. When Texas was more white, that is true. They had they had liberal Ann Richards as a governor. They had Democratic long-term Democratic senator and vice presidential candidate Lloyd Benson. Ralph they Yarbrough, had, if you go back a little farther, yeah, they, was they, more they, liberal. Uh, when Texas was whiter and less brown, it was more bipartisan and less blue. I mean, less red. So they're, they're, the math is sort of staring them in the face, and instead of accepting that map, um, they have spun fantasies for themselves. And, and Roy Tixera is a smart guy. He's correct in saying that the one thing that didn't, he didn't anticipate was the Democratic Party would go insane. Um, and I would say that is probably, um, probably the first thing I think of. <laughs> well, I had to make predictions, but apparently that came to him late. Hey, I have to interrupt here for just a second. You're talking about war. Sometimes people will talk about the butcher's bill. Well, there's a, there's a different kind of butcher that's a little happier to think about. That's the one that cuts your meat. Now, depending on what your store is like, where you live, sometimes you, know, you get those cuts and not so good. You get that ground chuck. It isn't so good either. Quality really does matter, especially. And you can taste when it's bad, and you can taste when it's so good. When it comes to the meat that's going to be the centerpiece of your holiday meals, quality matters. It's not just great taste to be on the lookout for, but the right sources that ensure that you and your family get the nutrition they deserve. That's why I invest in high-quality meat from ButcherBox, where sourcing decisions are made holistically, keeping the farmer, the planet, the animal, and your family in mind. 
ButcherBox gets their meat from partners with the highest standards. And since ButcherBox ships a curated selection every month, you can skip those long searches to the grocery store for that stuff you want. They have 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, wild-caught seafood, and bacon, right? Now, my favorite cut, I'm, you know, I'm an American guy, and sometimes I just want a good hamburger. Yes, I love all those other kinds of meats, but it's the hamburger that makes a hamburger different than the one you get at the fast food joint or the one you get when you bought that tube from that store. You know, it's all pink and smushy like that. Ah, you get the butcher box meat, you defrost, you've got something as as fresh as you can get, as if the guy was grinding it right in front of you. And the convenience and the cost, well, each box contains between 8 to 14 pounds of meat, depending on the box you choose. That's enough for 24 individual meals. Three weeks. You can customize your own box, or you can go with one of theirs. Either way, you'll get exactly what you want. This holiday, ButcherBox is giving new members one pack of bacon for free in every box, plus $20 off each box for the first five months of your membership. And that free bacon I mentioned, it's for life, for the life of your membership. You can sign free bacon for life. Huh? How do I get that, you ask? Well, it's easy. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash Ricochet. That's ButcherBox.com slash Ricochet. And we thank ButcherBox for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast, Free Bacon for Life. And now back to the show. As I mentioned at the top, and I'm sure everybody's absolutely fascinated about this, I took a trip to California, and I experienced uh, things that you don't necessarily expect if you just look at the bad news that says, oh, my God, needles and feces in San Francisco. Oh, my God. Homeless and candles <laughs> I saw in needles LA. and feces open and buttons and bars, wasn't it? <laughs> needles and feces, oh, my, as they say in the Wizard of Oz. The only thing I saw that actually conformed to the, to the bad story was when we were rumbling through the L.A. River, which isn't, um, there was a guy being held by a cop at gunpoint, hands behind his back, because he'd stolen something. Uh, there was a whole bunch of boxes around his trucks. So just that, that, it was the extent of the criminality that I saw. Now, no, but good news. They're, they're good arresting news. people for stealing. They didn't used to do that in California. I know. So does that mean that all the things I heard about California are not the case? No. It just means that it's an extremely large state, a sprawling place. And as somebody in Ricochet's comments pointed out when I was discussing how clement and wonderful I found the state, um, California is like America. You can't just say there's a California. You can right. say there's, you know, you, you can't even say there's a North Dakota because there's oil patch North Dakota, there's farming North Dakota, there's urban Fargo. You, you, you got lots. And when you look at California, you see a multiplicity of cultures and styles from the north to the south. It's, it's, it's a microcosm of America. Everything is a microcosm. America is a microcosm of America. And in that sense, it's great because this country, we know it, we know its common culture, but we can also explore all of its niches and variations. And that's wonderful. And that's what makes this protean, procrustean bed such an absolutely fantastic innovation in human civilization. Rob, however, came back from Europe where I expect, despite the fact that the EU is supposed to subsume all into a Beethoven singing European identity, that national uh, uh, identifications still persist. Yeah, Why yeah, the can't, Hung can't Hungarians can't. may think of yeah. themselves as Hungarians. Rob, did you, did you find that the case, or is everybody waving out their euros and saying, no, no, I'm, no, no, no. transnational ideas, viva the, us? Look. The euro as a currency was was extremely attractive and it remains attractive to people in those countries because they they, they didn't trust their own central bankers, right? Correct. So it's like, you know, Correct. let's let's move it on up. Let's like, but but that was pretty much it. I mean, 
the the, ben- the 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 chief beneficiaries, as far as I can tell right now, for the European Monetary Union or for the EU in general, the Irish, who were sort of bribed into joining this thing, and basically the EU built every highway in Ireland, and the Italians, who used this entrance to the club as a lever on their own domestic spending. So they got, and the Spanish did, they got their, they got their house in order a lot sooner, this is like, you know, 20 years ago, a lot sooner than anybody thought they would, and a lot sooner than some of the other countries that were sort of worried about the Italians. So in retrospect, the, the monetary union has been incredibly successful for most of that continent. It's just that all those things come with a price, and the price is you, you can't just get um, uh, uh, tough central bankers and, um, and budget hawks in your, uh, in your big bureaucracy. You also get people that are measuring the size of your butter pats and are telling the French that you can no longer have sugar cubes. Uh, when they took away the sugar cubes in France, there was like this minor, minor protest. But it was a protest. Whereas if they did that now, after 20-some-plus years of just constant bureaucratic encroachment in their lives, I think there would be riots. I think we'd be looking at protests in France about sugar cubes. Now, of course, they're gone. Nobody thinks about them. But there was a time when the the the, the no, your, sugar cubes on your, ta- on, your, on your table at every cafe, and they, they called it a... Um, a canard, where you take your sugar cube, you dip it in your coffee or your or your cafe au lait, and you give it to your children, and they would sort of suck on the this, the sugar cube that's been moistened with coffee, and that was considered totally normal. You can't do that now because there. The moment I knew cubes. Brexit was going to succeed was when I saw stories in the UK press about how the EU was going to regulate kettles, electric <laughs> kettles. That's <laughs> yes, right, right. Like, that was the last straw. That's Nobody like that. You're yeah. not touching our kettles and our tea. Right, right. I mean, the, the um, I, I, I guess what I'd say is that the the uh, what, what, I, what I think everyone is surprised with there, and everyone I think is surprised here, is how quickly you can connect bad policy to bad outcomes. True. So in New York City, for instance. It got it got slowly terrible in the fifties, sixties, and seventies and eighties. It just got slowly awful until the the lower high watermark penny. Look at it, nineteen ninety, which which I think had like some zillion number of homicides in some few few weeks into the year. It was incredibly. It was the, it was the bloodiest year in murders in New York's history in nineteen ninety. Um, and people kind of like it hit slow. You know, they were boiling the frog. Right, it's happened really slowly. There's no, there's no one today. I mean, I was in an Uber yesterday, and the Uber driver just started talking about how much he hated de Blasio. There is nobody in New York City today who doesn't connect rising crime, rising street incivility, um, with and and the and the trouble in the schools with liberal progressive policies. That is actually that is a profound insight. By the way, I hope you gave this guy five stars. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. But you know. If the other the thing at the national level, I've been surprised, heartened, needless to say, but also surprised by how quickly the country has got Joe Biden and the Democrats number, which is to say, by how quickly their poll numbers yes. have collapsed. Here in California, we're paying. In Northern California, we're paying over five bucks for the uh, subpremium tank. Touched six dollars the other day, sometime last week at Chevron. So of course, I drove on to Valero. Uh, but pe- 
people just, oh, yeah, that's Biden. That's Biden. It's <laughs> yeah. just, by the way, the, main, the, the next thing, there, there, there are these spate of articles on um, how Biden can come back. He oh, yeah, can't. right. Yeah. He can't. This is over. What's going to happen next, what's already begun to happen, is the, the Democrats are going to flip, not a lot of them, but enough to eliminate yeah. Nancy Pelosi's governing majority in the House and enough to give Chuck Schumer real trouble, even more trouble than he's already had in the Senate. They're going to flip from pounding on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin for defying the president, and instead they're going to begin defying the president themselves because these people are facing re-election struggles. Right, right. Yes, and and this, the, this yeah. administration has lost control of its and, own party. It's and over. The, irony, the irony is that the solution is so clear. I mean, I hate, you know, yes, it's, such yes, a, yes. it's such a Jungian solution. Your shadow self, Democrats, yes. your mansions and your cinemas, that is, the, those are, that's the solution for you. You need to, so you need to surrender to your shadow. I mean, it's, and it's bizarre to me that it's not this, but it's not, but it's really actually only in the, in the um, consulting class of Democrats, your Carvels, your Roy Tixeras, those people, who who are saying, telling them the truth, and no, none of the new Democrats want to hear it. Which is the weirder we are, the farther we are from the center, the worse we do. And that seems like, well, yeah, but it's a very, very hard thing to convince a gigantic organism that for years, ben, I mean, look, the Democratic Party is the most successful political party in the history of Earth. And one of the reasons it's been successful is that it managed to move the country left and, and, and accomplish its left-wing goals even as it lost the White, the White House and occasionally the Senate. And then not until 1994, 50 years later, the House. That the message from the de- for the Democrats has been: make sure you have a lot of conservative Democrats right. in your party right. to ga- balance out the Marxist graduate students. And when they forgot that, they started to become insane. And when you get to get to be insane, you end up having either a 900-year-old, two-time Speaker of the House, I think, or three, Nancy Pelosi, and a 9,000-year-old Methuselah president, <laughs> and everyone else is a crazy crackpot progressive leftist who is despised by the very people that formed your base 20 years ago. And you know who's in the best position of all to embrace Joe Manchin and to reposition the Democratic Party? Joe Biden. Joe Biden could. Joe Biden could do a joint appearance in West Virginia with Joe Manchin. And Joe Biden could say, listen, folks, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And when I grew up in Scranton, the product of Scranton was coal. Mm-hmm. I understand what it's like to work in the mines, to have an economy of working people, and that's my Democratic Party. It's the Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt. He could, but of course, he's too no. old. He's entirely in the hands of the progressives now. It just isn't. It's no longer an option. Yeah. No, no it can't be. It, it's like come, it's like coming out for genocide because coal <laughs> yes, is, right. is killing the planet and everybody on it, which is why I believe, actually, that Nancy Pelosi has given up. Because I read that Nancy Pelosi has bought a seaside mansion property in Florida, which only means to me that she is just simply going to sit in her chair like Guggenheim on the Titanic, waiting for the waters to rise around her and take her away. <laughs> well, um, I don't price tag, by the way. Everybody here in California, you know, I live just a little south of Nancy Pelosi's district, and my wife, whoa, was my wife steamed. 
she she doesn't follow t- politics that closely, but she and all her friends, and almost all her friends are liberals, but she, she forwarded to me, it's on Zillow, this house that Nancy Pelosi and Paul Pelosi bought, $25 million, mm-hmm. $25 million for their second home in Florida. She's, fair to say, though. she's the champion of the working people. Right. Absurd. But, but I think it's fair to say, though, for the Pelosi's, $25 million for a house, that's sofa change for those people. Yes, yes. She's married I mean, to a she's very extremely, rich man. extremely rich person, which is, you know, I celebrate. Good for her. I mean, but the idea that this ancient person should be leading a party, uh, be the second, the second most influential Democrat in the war, in the country after the after somebody who's even older and more out of touch, is a real problem. It's a real problem when you when you don't have anybody in the middle saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, can we be normal for? And the person who is saying that. From West Virginia is vilified by his own party. That's uh, not a recipe for success. Well, I'm the person in the middle who's saying, "Well, it's over." Oh, and by over, right. I mean yeah. we're done. This podcast <laughs> is brought to you. Yeah. Hold on a second Thank here. I got something to tell you. Podcast brought to you by Boland Branch, by Butcher Box, and by Aura. Please support them for supporting us. And join Ricochet today, by the way, and you will have access to no dumb questions. That wonderful little segment we pitched at the top of the show. We didn't forget about it. It's coming up. You're going to love it. Take a minute, if you will, to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, your reviews allow other listeners to discover us, gets our rating up there, and helps keep the show going, which we want to do because we're so close to number 600. And gentlemen, where are we going to have number 600? We should do it in person at a oh, special yeah. location. Your house is what I heard. That's what Scott Nancy Pelosi. Uh, 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 Nancy Pelosi's. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll figure that out, and of course, we'll tell you. But until then, we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week. Next, next week, boys. Join the conversation.